Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Welcome to Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I'm here with Swami Chidananda, and he is initiated in the Vaishnava lineage. And I'm very excited to share this space of conversation learning and see what comes up in our conversation. So please, please welcome Swami. I'm so, so grateful for you to take this time to speak with me. Hello. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the conversation today. So I'd like to start kind of at the very beginning, which is um, you are a Swami now. And we were chatting before and you shared with me that you're born in Mysore. And I have a very deep connection in many of our, our, our communities, a deep connection to Mysore through the Ashtanga Yoga lineage. And I was also reading a little bit about your background and apparently you used to be an investment banker. So would you talk about how your path led you from being born in Mysore to becoming an investment banker and then finding this initiation into the bhakti path that you're on now? Yeah, it's. I think it's a very interesting story. Um, I, as, as you had mentioned, I, I grew up and was born in Mysore. And when I was very, very little, my father, my father passed away, and so my mother ended up moving to the states. A lot of times, when you go into a new culture and a new environment, you try your best to fit in. So for her, she really went away from the Vedic tradition and practices. Because at that time, she wanted me to sort of fit into the community and have friends and all of those things. So for the longest time, as I was growing up in the United States, I didn't really have a connection at all to Vedic tradition. For me, you know, there's a joke that says the busiest time of the year in a temple is right before a finals exam. So it's this idea that, you know, we go to the temple, we try and make a business deal, we break some coconuts and and we hope that we get an A in our next test, right? So that was the extent of what I even knew about this tradition. I didn't know the deepness of it. And so for me, it was something that I was born into, but nothing that I really practiced. And I really very much went into the material side of reality. I very much went into making as much money as possible, having that power, 
fame, influence, all of those things that we are conditioned to try and achieve in this, in this world. And I graduated from the top of my class in university. And at a very young age, I was offered a job in investment banking where I was making more money than most people would make, you know, being in, in, this, in a field for 20, 30 years. And of course, at that time, I didn't really know how to use this money or use this influence. And of course, I spent it on BMWs and partying and alcohol and all of these things. And I was very much into the world. right? And then at some point, as I was going through this reality, a thought came into my mind. Like, you know what? I can win the rat race. But at the end of the day, I'll still be a rat. Like that was my thought. You know, I can win the rat race, but I'll still be a rat. And is that really what I want with my life? And so this, this feeling, I, I can only say it's grace. Because we don't know when certain moments come into our life that have a profound impact. And for me, you know, we can talk about many reasons, but I, I just really put it to grace that somehow I had this thought, which allowed me to go and explore more about other possibilities in life. And at this point, a cousin of mine was visiting me from India, and he recommended a book called The Autobiography of a Yogi. It's a book about a great yogi from India named Paramahamsa Yogananda, who came to the States and taught Kriya. And I read this book, and this book changed my life. Like it, it was such a profound book that I started to completely see life in a, in a different way. And so I said, you know what? I have to explore things outside of the scope. So I quit my job. Wow. I, booked, I booked a ticket to India. I just said, I'm going to go and I'm just going to see what happens. And I'm with my friends the last day. Um, I was at a, at a bar and I told them, you know, I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow. And they all started laughing at me like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? So, no, I'm just going to go. And it was funny, you know, that day I ate meat, I drank alcohol and I was with somebody. And that was the last time I did any of those things. It's almost like the divine is like, you know what? I'm going to give you all of this because you're never going to experience it again in this life. So it was literally all three things happen. And I woke up in the morning and I'm going to the airport. And I tell my mother, you know, I'm going to be gone for a little while, you know, maybe a week, maybe a few weeks, maybe a month. And she starts to cry. I said, why are you crying? And she said, I have a feeling I will not see you for a very, very long time. Oh. And I got on a plane, I landed in India and I, it just so happened in that particular time I was in India, there is something called the Kumbha Mela. Mm. So Kumbha Mela is a, a moment in time from an astrological perspective where there's a lot of positive energy that is accumulated in the Ganga River. So at a certain moment, it's said that if you take a dip in the Ganga at that point, it will catapult you on your spiritual evolution. And this happens every four years, 12 years, and 144 years. 
So there are these increments of 12. And all of the great saints from all around the world, over 50 million people were all coming to India to a place called Allahabad, where the Ganga meets with a few other tributaries. And I had no idea. I had no idea this was going on, right? And I find myself there. And somebody tells me there's this Kumbha Mela that's happening. I said, okay, I'm going to go. And in that Kumbha Mela, I ended up meeting my spiritual teacher. His name is Paramahamsa Swami Vishwananda, and he has an ashram in Germany. And that's currently where I am as we're having this conversation now. And he was there in that time. And I didn't know anything. I had no idea about spirituality. I had no idea about anything. And I found myself there and I met him. And the moment I was in his presence, everything changed for me. There's a very beautiful quote in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, you know, you can try and give up the world. You can try and give up your uh, negative elements. You can try to give up greed and lust and anger and frustration. You can try and try and try, but it's extremely difficult. But the moment you experience divine love, you automatically give it up without even trying, right? So if you make an effort, you can do your whole life and you might not get it. But the moment you've experienced divine love, all of those negative qualities naturally just shed away without you even having to try. <laughs> and that's the beauty and grace of being in that divine energy. And so for me, when I was with him, I felt that divinity. I felt that love. And it started to completely have a transformative moment in my mind. And I was with him and I got the grace to be with him for 15 days during the whole Kumbh Mela ceremony. And afterwards I said, you know, what do I do now? <laughs> and he said, well, come and spend some time with me in, in my ashram in Germany. I said, okay. And I said, how long? He said, oh, you know, a few weeks. Said, okay, no problem. So directly from India, I landed in Germany in the ashram. And so at that point, I was still in the investment banking sort of mind frame. And I went to him, I said, oh, how can I help you? Right? Can I, I can maybe help you with finance, some marketing, this or that. And he looked at me and he said, you know, why don't you work in the garden? I said, garden? I've never even, I've never even grown one plant, let alone work in an entire garden. So yeah, yeah start there. It's like, okay. So, you know, I go to the supervisor of the place. They give me some dirty clothes. I go, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm picking the weeds. Every second seems like an eternity. There's a lot of times when we're very much in the mind, things go, right? We're very active. But when you go to an ashram for the first time, they give you very menial tasks. And you might think, oh, this is stupid or this is useless, but it's actually not because you're helping them in any way. It's to get your mind to just start to shut down and you start the, rep the repetition of the tasks makes your mind not so active and you start to become grounded into this new reality. So a lot of times when you go to, if, you know, the listeners, they're thinking about going to an ashram. 
be ready to do a very menial task repeatedly. <laughs> and you might think it's boring, but it's actually having a huge transformative effect on you. So in this moment, I'm doing this task and um, there was a sewage tank and the sewage tank broke. It's pumping the sewage. And of course I'm new. So the guy comes to me and he says, so we need you to go into the sewage tank, clean out all of the sewage, by hand with a cup because there wasn't a pump and then that way we can fix it so i was looking at the sewage tank and i in my mind i was thinking you know i was an investment banker right i was making millions of dollars and now you want me to go and clean sewage and all of this pride all of this arrogance started to rise up and so in that moment i had to make a decision why am i walking the spiritual path is it because I want to know who I am? Or is it because I want to apply the same things that I did in the material reality to the spiritual reality? Because this is the mistake many people make. When they start to do the yoga practices and they start to go deeper into the practices, they still apply the old mindset that they applied in the world to the practices. Mm -hmm. And they're completely different levels of consciousness mm -hmm. and so for me i had to let go of my preconditioned thinking of what am i how am i providing value what am i doing to be successful and be like no my teacher asked me to take the sewage so i do it there's no outcome there's no prize at the end of the tunnel i just do it <laughs> So it was a very hard decision, not easy at all, but I somehow through grace, I was able to find the strength to just do it. And I finished. And after I finished, I was not happy. I was actually quite sort of frustrated, questioning, what am I doing here? All of these things. And in that moment, my teacher came and he looked at me and said, what's the matter? I said, you know, I just don't know if I can do this path. You know, I don't know if this is for me. And he looked at me and he said, you see, the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna represents you. You are Arjuna. And all of those enemies that you are looking at, they represent all of your negative qualities that are inside of you. And your job is to slowly transcend each one of these qualities. But it's not going to be easy. You're going to have many tests. But if you continue on the path, over time, you will start to overcome these qualities. So I said, okay, let's <laughs> do it. <laughs> and so from that moment, three weeks turned into one month. One month turned into three months. After five, six months, I, I asked if I could take um, what is called like a novice sannyasi initiation, where you take an initiation to live a certain way, mm -hmm. but it's not a lifelong thing. And you go through tests for five, six years, and then, then you progress from there. So I took that initiation. And then one year, two years, then seven years later, um, I was initiated as a Rishi, which is a specific title that's given as a next step. And then after those seven years, 
I never, by the way, I never went back to the United States. From the moment I left that time I said bye to my mother, I never came back. I never spoke to my friends. I never connected with anybody. I just lived there in the ashram for those seven years. So your mom's intuition, she was right. I bet she's missed you a lot. Exactly. Yes, she was very right. But she did come and visit me in the ashram and spent some time here and enjoyed it and all of those things. But of course, it was very difficult for her. And then after seven years, um, my teacher then gave the blessing for me to go to the United States and to speak on the Gita, to speak on the spiritual path. And so, you know, and we can talk about this later about my experiences and how it went, but ultimately then I ended up coming to the United States. And then um, a few months ago, um, I received initiation as, as a Swami as well. So that's a little bit of a summary of how I went on this path. What an amazing and inspiring journey. I think it's a, really a testament to, you know, when, when that, you know, when the, the, the mind is ready for the shift, then all of the universe conspires to create that opening. And, you know, what a serendipitous, you know, divinely orchestrated meeting of your teacher and that feeling of complete and total, you know, surrender in that moment is, is life-changing and, and you were ready for it. So for people who don't know what the what it means to be in the Vaishnava lineage, mm-hmm. what 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 kind of a, a, a spiritual path is that? There are many people who are familiar with yoga asanas and maybe even slightly familiar with some of the more esoteric practices, but there's so many people who know the spiritual path originating from India primarily through the vehicle of asana. So what what is your spiritual path and how does that differ in terms of practice and philosophy from the way that most people in the West understand the spirituality of, of, of the Vedic traditions? Sure, sure. That's a great question. So now obviously, if we were to really go into the, to the strict translation of yoga, it means union. So it's this understanding that um, at this point, in our reality, in our mindset, we have forgotten our true nature. So our true nature is that we are eternal. And so because we don't remember this, because we don't know this, we associate ourselves with everything which is limited. So we have fear of death, fear of uncertainty, fear of not having enough. And all of this is just the byproduct of the ego influencing our mindset that we forget our eternal nature. So yoga and Vedic tradition, the goal is to transcend that limited identification to realize our true self again. So that path is said to be a path from the mind to the heart, just 40 centimeters, but it can take a whole lifetime. So all of the literature, all of the scripture within Sanatana Dharma is there geared towards helping us in that journey. It first starts with the Vedas. And Vedas are very, very broad. And they're almost also contradictory in nature. Because the very first verse of the Vedas is Ekam Sat Vipraha Bahuddha Vedanti which means the truth is one, 
but the wise speak of it in many ways. So already from the get-go, it's saying the truth is one, but there will be many different ways to get to the truth. So when you read the Vedas or when you study the Vedas, you might perceive from a Western mind discrepancies. But in the East, we have accepted the discrepancies as a way of understanding that the divine can never be put in a box. Because the moment you remove discrepancies, that's the moment you sort of go into the dogma of, of spiritual practices. So a healthy sort of uh, back and forth is very important. So we, we are open and flexible to many different ways and practices. Mm -hmm. So from the Vedas, which is the base, then you start to go into more specific texts and specific understandings of how we can view ourself in relation to this world and in relation to that divine supreme consciousness. And so there you're going to branch out into which is generally referred to as Shaivism and Vaishnavism. So Shaivism is going to follow a philosophy called Advaitism. And in the Advaitic philosophy, it's that I am God, right? I'm not a parcel of God. I'm not the lover of God. I'm not the beloved of God, but I am God. All of this is just an illusion. And everything that I do is to understand I am that. And what I am is formless and attributeless. There's no way to like grab onto it. It's just an energy. So a very good example of this is in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna states, you can view it as a pearl necklace. So if you see a pearl necklace, you see all of the pearls. Now, if you didn't know how a pearl necklace works, you wouldn't understand there is a thread that is connecting it. But of course, if you take the thread and you cut it, the pearl necklace ceases to exist. So this thread that is connecting and keeping everything together in this creation, this is that formless energy that you are, that I am, that everything is, okay? That's more Shaivism and Advaitism. Now, in the Vaishnava tradition, we follow something called Vishishta Advaita, which means that we don't perceive ourselves to be that, but we perceive ourselves to be the servant of that. So it's this idea that God, I am not God. I am the beloved of God, right? So there's this this reciprocation and there is this separation and realization is once again to realize our true nature and our relationship to god so in vaishnavism we're going to focus more on not a formless energy but a form that we can relate to that we can call a friend that we can call our lover or our father or our mother Right, So we can create this relationship with the divine. And by doing external rituals such as puja, such as uh, performing incense, such as focusing our mind on a particular form, we start to become purified and start going towards the truth. 
So in this way, in the Vaishnava tradition, which I belong to, we're very much centered on having a relationship to a form of the divine. So that's why we uh, go into tales of Krishna or Rama or Narasimha. That's why we do a lot of bhajans or kirtans, which is the glorification of these forms. As a disclaimer, it's not that our path is better than the path of the Advaitist. It's just very different, right? So the Advaitist is, is about denying reality and saying that this is all unreal. And the bhakta, the one who practices bhakti, is saying this is all real, but this is also all divine. So for example, if somebody gives me a pizza, I'm not going to say I'm denying this pizza. I'm going to say this pizza is coming from my beloved. It's coming from God. So I'm going to consume it with that understanding, right? So you can see how bhakti is very beautiful, but you have to be guided by a very qualified teacher in bhakti. Because if you don't have the right qualifications, you can see how it can become very ungrounded, right? Mm -hmm. I can be like, oh, this is God. This is pizza from God. So therefore I'm going to consume it. But in reality, it's just my mind playing tricks on me. So you have yeah, to I could see that as a pitfall for sure. You know, so it's I think very easy and very enjoyable, but also you can get very, very ungrounded very quick, very quickly. Mm. And so I feel like when people who aren't steeped in the lineage like you are, who haven't devoted years of their life to understanding what it means to go on that bhakti path, then may hear this teaching and then extrapolate it to a way that is, as you said, ungrounded for them and may actually end up leading them far away from, from their true nature and far away from any relationship with the divine. So if it's not pizza, then it could be anything, you know? There are some kind of pitfalls of the spiritualization of some of these very sacred lineage-based teachings that kind of turn them into you know, two second memes that people suddenly say, well, I can do anything as long as I understand it comes from the divine. And then that anything can include, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Because you can say Krishna had 20 wives. (laughs) Krishna cheated. Krishna lied. He stole butter. So therefore, if he can do that, I can do that as well. So you see how it can get very, very confusing, very, very muddled. Mm-hmm. So I also feel a lot of, so I know the lineage that you come from, the founding Acharya is also a Vaishnava. Mm-hmm. I believe it comes from the Sri Vaishnava lineage. So in this way, you know, also the great teachers understood Bhakti is a very, very deep and very, very intense practice that it takes time to get into. So as you're approaching that, that's where for me, the belief is, all of these modern exercises, right? So like the Ashtanga yoga practice, the Hatha yoga practice, really focusing on the body, really grounding ourselves. These are all preparations to go deeper into bhakti, right? So this is what uh, many people sort of fall short on. They see the practice as just for the body and being fit, but they are preparation It's a preparation for the mind to become calm. It's a preparation to 
ground ourselves so then we can go deeper into the Gita. We can go deeper into the scriptures. And so it's that's why I always say it's very beautiful to go into Ashtanga yoga. It's Hatha yoga to go deep into the to the to the postures, because when you do them properly, they do have an impact on your mind. You do feel a shift. But then it's about what do I do with that? Right. Where do I where do I go next with that? And I believe that's what is lacking in modern day yoga at this point, at this moment. Where would you have people go, you know? So sometimes I feel like there's there really isn't a lot of instruction around that. And then people are 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 very confused about who to turn to. And, you know, for example, what often happens is as these postures are working, then sometimes the students will begin to have emotional processing that comes up, something that could be a crack in the veneer of the ego. And then they begin to process, you know, old emotions, behaviors, and things that they become inspired to change and to be, you know, a better person. And then they come to their yoga teacher and then they come with all this information of, well, when I was in this posture, I felt, you know, almost like my, I wanted to cry and I felt this feeling of bliss and grace. And then a couple of things I noticed happen. Sometimes there's a transference to the, to the yoga asana teacher, um, or there's this sort of, uh, you know, please tell me what to do next. And we may not have as yoga asana teachers, you know, someone who's done say a 200 hour training and then be in this space and have someone come to them, then like, there's not really a clear guidance of what, how do you encourage the student to answer that call of the divine that the deep yoga asanas actually begin to kind of unearth if, if you're not steeped in it yourself. That's a fantastic insight. And you've really hit the nail on the head as to why I personally am doing what I'm doing. Because it's really, you know, in the Vedic tradition, there is a deep understanding that we seek spiritual teachers we humble ourselves we learn from them because they have reached certain states or they've had certain understandings and so by going to them they help us to take that next step but of course in the west we are conditioned to not do that right because in your mind you're like oh i can't do that i can't I'm happy to discuss these things with my 200-hour yoga teacher trainer. But if we start talking about me having to be humble, me, me having to possibly bow down to somebody or these kinds of things, that's too much for me. So this is the predicament because people are awakening, but they're not understanding the traditions that are there for thousands of years, right? So these great yoga teachers that came to the West and taught these practices, they came from a tradition where they understood what is the natural evolution. But now that's not there. And the problem is that we're also in a, what we refer to as Kali Yuga. So Kali Yuga is, a, is an age where everything is turned upside down, right? So we're very much into the world, material gratification. And it even said in the scriptures, people start to wear and don the orange robes and call themselves swamis, but in fact, they are very much in the world. So then people hear about maybe certain things with certain people, and then they have a negative understanding, and then they're shut off, and then it becomes very difficult. 
So a lot of the times, you know, the great teachers that came, Paramahamsa Yogananda, many other teachers, their mission is to help people bridge that cap, gap and be an inspiration where people feel comfortable to go deeper into these practices. Because the great founders of Ashtanga Yoga, Hatha Yoga, it, they didn't want it just to stop at the postures. They wanted us to go deeper into the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And where does the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras originate from? It actually originates from the original yoga techniques taught by Kriya, taught by Krishna in the Gita, right? So the sutras are just the essence of the Gita. And so it's about going deeper and deeper and deeper. And to do that, you have to have some trust in a teacher that you feel can guide you and help you. And if you don't, that's also fine. Then I would suggest maybe studying the Gita by yourself, reading some commentaries. But of course, that's going to be more difficult, right? It's mm-hmm. much easier when you have a teacher that can, that can guide mm-hmm. you and learn this. Mm-hmm. So finding that balance is, is important, especially mm-hmm. in I'd love to go a little bit deeper into uh, the role of the student, because this is something from a pedagogical perspective that is very different from Western learning traditions versus Eastern learning traditions. You know, in the Western world, yoga, non-yoga, whatever it is, whether it's yoga or investment banking or car sales or whatever it is, as soon as you reach a certain level of proficiency, you kind of launch into competition with your teacher or your mentor. And it's totally fine to compete with them. And it's totally fine to um, not credit them any longer. And it's completely, it's almost like you won. It's this kind of competitive mindset of zero sum game. And that's totally opposite. Like if we take some of the, you know, traditional imagery of, uh, and, and teaching of what a student represents and, the, and you know, the, the wisdom traditions of the East, particularly Arjuna presented mm-hmm. as this kind mm-hmm. of ideal student, you know, yeah. and, and in this moment where, um, you know, uh, he has this opportunity to have Krishna as his, you know, as, as his guide and charioteer or, or, or you know, um, then these choices that he makes are rooted in humility. And, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that in the tradition of archery, you're in, within India, you're not allowed to fire an, 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 an arrow at your teacher. You can only fire at the feet of your teacher some you know, distance away to, and, and as a sign of respect. And it's something that is just so different um, in terms of the, you know, the, the sort of student's journey. So how can Western students begin to understand what it means to be a true spiritual disciple? Yes, that's, that's a very good question. You know, in the Vedic tradition, it's, it's a fabric. It's, it's woven into everything that we do. Even if you were to take a mala, a 108-beat mala, there is something called the guru bead. So that's your 109th bead in the mala. It's called the guru bead. And the reason why it's called the guru bead is that firstly, it helps us to keep track of where we are in the practice. And secondly, once you finish and you get to the guru bead, you should never cross the guru bead. You should then go the other way. So it's like a, it's almost like a pendulum when you're doing the chanting. And the reason for this is to once again show that when it comes to the teacher, 
the teacher will always know more. The teacher will always be that guiding light for us to look at. And so we never cross the teacher. We bow down and we go the other way, right? So there's already this understanding. Also, when we bow down to the feet of the teacher, what is happening? In that moment, the brain or the mind goes below the heart. So in that moment, it's this understanding that I am putting my mind at the feet of the teacher and I'm hoping that my heart rises beyond the logic of my mind. So that is why we bow. It's not just, oh, we go on the floor and put our head and we don't know what we're doing. It's that symbolism of I'm choosing to lead with my heart over my mind. And Kabir, who is a great saint, um, many, uh, a thousand years ago, he said, the price of realizing who you are is your head. (laughs) So if you want to understand who you are, cut off your head and place it at the feet of the teacher. He's not talking, of course, it's an allegory, but it's this idea that we must drop the mind in order to go deeper. And the, the, the main problem that I perceive in the West is we're very logic driven, right? So we, we need to understand everything with the mind. And that's great for material things. That's great for investment banking or marketing or whatever else. But you cannot use the mind to approach the spiritual elements of this reality because spirituality and the divine are beyond the mind's comprehension. It's almost like if, um, if a, um, a fish was in a fishbowl and it's looking at humans walking by and it says, oh, why don't they have gills to breathe, right? Oh, they should have gills. Why don't they have gills? And you're trying to explain to a fish why humans don't have gills. They're going to say, what is this person talking about? So in the same way, I know this is going to sound controversial, but to explore and go deeper on the spiritual path, you must be a gambler, not a business person. You must take a risk without understanding the outcome, right? That's what a gambler does. They take a risk, a a qualified risk, but a risk nonetheless, without knowing what the outcome is going to be. Mm -hmm. The business person makes a deal, shakes hands, and they know what I give you money, I'm going to get this back in return, right? Transactional. Transactional. So you can't take a transactional mindset and apply it to the spiritual path because you're always going to be let down because the guru is never going to adhere to your understandings of reality. They're constantly going to challenge it. And so if you don't have the spiritual maturity to be able to understand that and to flow with that, it's going to be very difficult for you because you're taking a gamble. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. And as I said, we're in Kali Yuga, so it might not be that the gamble will always pay off. But if you find the right teacher and you put your chips in, it's going to be the best decision you've ever made in your life. Mm. So I would encourage people to not approach it from a transactional perspective, but have a little bit of faith as well in your path. And this is not just faith from nowhere, right? Arjuna, what did he do? He asked questions. So it's not, it's okay to ask questions. One should never just take something at face value. 
You can always ask questions. But at some point, if you feel within yourself that this path and these teachings are something that resonate with me, that I feel that I cannot quantify with my five senses, then you have to take a gamble if you want to progress more. Because an enlightened being will never play by your rules. They play by rules which we can't comprehend with the mind. What are some of the ways that your teacher has challenged you? So a good example is one day we were all sitting and it was uh, three, four in the morning. And it was a close group of disciples. And a lot of times, you know, with him, we're just talking, we're eating, we're just in the presence. And three in the morning, he just goes quiet, right? We're in a, we're in a, like a, a bungalow where there's a living room and then there's a place where he is sleeping. So he goes very quiet. And he gets up and he goes into his room and we have no idea what's going on, what's happening. 20 minutes later, he comes and he's very strict. He has his fist closed and he says, gather around me. So we all gather around him. And he says, when I was traveling in India, I met a great saint and he gave me this particle of food. It's called Prasad. And he said, whoever eats this, will become instantly enlightened. And then as we're gathering around, he says this, and he opens his hand, and the particle is in his hand. And at this point, what do you do? You, you grab it or you, you let it go? What would you do? <laughs> Gosh, I don't, how many other people are around? Five, four or five people. Is it big enough to split five ways? Just a very, very small piece. I think I would have to ask my teacher to decide what best to do with the particle. Okay. So we only have a few seconds, right? So he opens his hand and we're all looking. So there's many ways this can go. One is, why am I on the path? To realize the divine. So here in this moment, that goal, that what I've spent my life trying to achieve is there, right there. If I just get it. Another part is what if I grab it? And as I'm grabbing it, he closes his fist. Then I look like the crazy person, the arrogant person. And everybody's going to look at me like what's happening. He's going to be mad at me. So, right. So we have these thoughts running. So it's open for three seconds. Nobody dares to even move. And he closes his fist. He goes into his room comes back five minutes later and he just starts talking to us just about the day. Never mentioned it again. And that was about eight years ago. And to this day, never brought up again. And to this day, I still don't know what the right answer is. I still don't know what the right thing to have done in that moment. And the reason why I'm sharing the story is so once again, to go into this idea, we cannot understand things from logic. There are things beyond logic that we, we just don't know. And the teacher will always challenge us and will always keep us on our toes. Even if we become initiated as a Swami, even if we grow spiritually, the teacher will always, I like, I like this quote, the teacher says, I have taught you everything you know, but that doesn't mean that I've taught you everything that I know. <laughs> So it's this idea that I've given you everything that you know, but know that there are some things 
that are also beyond your understanding. And it's healthy to always have that mindset because it keeps you humble. The mm -hmm. moment you think you've understood, the moment you think you've attained something, then you already you're limiting yourself. Mm -hmm. Even the, the, my teacher would say, even when you reach a perfected state, the guru will always still challenge you. Right? That's a very profound statement to understand. Even when you reach a perfected state, the guru will always challenge you. So it's this idea that we should remove from our mind this trying to reach a goal or trying to reach this or reach that. It's just about experiencing and feeling the love of the divine more and more in our lives. That should be the only real goal that we should try and strive mm -hmm. towards, right? Serve the people, love the people, make your life a service. And that's enough. You don't need to worry about becoming enlightened and all of these things that are very abstract for the mind. If you can be an example of a great disciple by spreading love to the world, you've already accomplished what you need to in this life. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I love that message. And I think that we so often get lost on the spiritual path, hyper-focused on our own sort of granular experience of, you know, what we're going through. Um, one obstacle comes up and we, you know, whether it's a physical obstacle and we sort of obsess about that and circle around that. And, and, and then we have an emotional obstacle that comes up and we're toiling away within that. And it's very difficult to switch and think, how can I be of service in this moment? And it's almost like if, if that switch can happen, then all those small toils and troubles, uh, definitely the burden of them gets lessened through that act of service. And so how can yogis in the West, people who are yoga practitioners, how can they be of service? Is it as simple as maybe volunteering at their yoga center or seeking out charitable work? Or how, or is it as simple as just trying to be nice to people all day? What do you recommend? <laughs> so service means from a Gita perspective, doing your action without attachment to the fruits of your action. If you can do that, you're already being of service. Right? Many people think that service means charity, but in reality, if you're giving, if you're helping, but you're looking behind you to see who's documenting you as you're giving charity, you're not actually performing a charitable act. It's tainted by the ego. And the moment it's tainted by the ego, it's not an act based on love. But the moment you start to let go of attachments and expectations and you just do what you need to, maybe you're a mother and you just love your child without expectation, or maybe you're an accountant and you do your duty without expectation, already you're serving the world. Already you're doing something that most people in this world would not be able to do. And so here, once again, just to speak on bhakti and Vaishnavism, the Gita says, perform your action without expectation or attachment to the fruits. But that can be very difficult, right? So you're telling me remove my attachment, then what is my driving motivation? It's very difficult just to be like, yeah, just do your action. Don't have any attachment to the fruits. Finish. No, not very practical, right? 
So here Krishna is saying, perform your action without attachment to the fruits. But at the same time, when I'm growing a tree, let's say a mango tree, and I'm not attached to the fruits, I don't care if it tastes good or it tastes bad. Right? I don't care if it's not nice. Who cares? I'm not going to eat it. It doesn't matter. But Krishna is saying, also have the mindset that you're going to offer that fruit to the divine. And that's your driving motivation. Right? So now you are not just doing it without attachment, but you're making sure that mango tree is beautiful. You're putting in your effort. You're doing everything that you need to because you know that that mango that is growing, you're eventually going to offer it to your beloved. So that's the driving motivation. Do it without attachment, but also offer whatever you do in this life to the divine. And mm -hmm. if it says, you know, God, I'm an accountant. I'm not going to be able to do great, great things. But the small thing that I'm doing here of crossing the dots and balancing the check sheet, I'm going to offer it to you. And if you can condition yourself to do that, you're going to find so much peace and joy in your life. Mm. But that, that is the crux of the spiritual path is to get to that place where you can let go of your own understanding of reality, of your ego and offer everything to the divine. Mm. That's, that's why I was saying in one of the reels, the Gita can be summarized just in two words. Krishna spoke for 700 verses all to get to the point for Krishna, Arjuna to realize, let go. Let go of everything that you think is right and wrong and let and surrender to the divine and let the divine flow through you. And that can take a whole lifetime. Mm -hmm. So I would suggest people, no need to go from zero to 100. <laughs> do your asanas, do your practices every day. Try your best to maybe go deeper into the scriptures, such as the Gita or the Ramayana or even you know, tantric texts or texts based on a divine mother and gain knowledge. And that knowledge will bring more clarity and will help you to make better decisions without attachment into the future. Mm. What a beautiful, beautiful way of seeing the desire to come deeper into the spiritual path and have it translate into a, a life lived in, in close connection with the divine. See, I feel like in some ways, the most devout and dedicated yoga asana practitioners are in their hearts really searching for God and they might not realize it, but there's something in them that is really desiring, yearning for a feeling and experience that only the presence and direct experience of God can really fill. And it's like, there's not words for it, or maybe the religion that they were born with or the culture of the religion that they were born into isn't really giving them that access point into the divine. And then, you know, we start practicing yoga and then you were, so there's particularly people that don't have any connection into Vedic culture, take, and take small little tidbits without necessarily going so deeply into it. And I really love the way that you present the depth of the, of the lineage and the teaching in a way that's yet very, very accessible. I'd love to ask you one 
to, to describe one more portion of the Gita, which I found really inspirational when you talk about, which is uh, the, the verse that um, uh, you mentioned that, that people say when someone passes away that talks about the eternality of, uh, of, of that, that essence, that spirit within. So would you be able to, to talk about that and, and to say kind of, um, you know, at what point is this reading usually done? So many people are, are experiencing grief and everybody has grief and loss. And I feel that those times are when we start asking those questions of who am I? Where did this being that I loved, where have they gone? They were here and now they're not anymore. So where have they gone? Where will I go one day? And so it, it sort of brings up these very deep questions that are at the essence of the, the spiritual journey. Sure, sure. It's, you know, Krishna says in the Gita, there was never a time when you did not exist, nor me, nor any of these warriors that are standing here on the battlefield, nor will there ever be a time in the future when all of us shall cease to be. Such a very, very simple verse but you can spend a whole lifetime meditating on it. He essentially says, Arjuna, you are eternal. I am eternal. We've always existed and will always continue to exist. And we say God's favorite game, it's very simple. God's favorite game is hide and go seek. <laughs> he hides himself in this reality. And it's the job of the Atma to come into this world play this game of hide and go seek, and once again, find him in every molecule of this creation. So you don't go to a mother who is playing hide and go seek with their child and say, why are you playing hide and go seek with him? You should be teaching him calculus. This is so futile what you're doing. No, you're going to say, oh, that's nice. They're having a fun time. And it's the same. When we understand that we are etern our eternal relationship with the divine, this is just a moment in time where we're playing hide and go seek with him. And a lot of times, like a child, when we are playing hide and go seek and we're not able to find the mother, we start to cry, right? We start to suffer. And in that suffering, the divine once again reveals itself. So the mother's like, oh, I don't want to see the child cry. So here I am. Or sometimes we're distracted by the things of this world, and we forget the game that we're even playing, right? And so it's said that there's only two ways to grow spiritually, suffering or grace. And if we don't take advantage of grace, suffering will eventually come into our life, not because God is a masochist, but it's to help us to once again realize what is it that we're doing with this life. So when we go through suffering, when we experience suffering, firstly, we should try our best, of course, it's not easy, to understand this is an eternal game between us and our beloved. And so that is just the door for the next phase of the game, right? And so we play the game and eventually at some point we, once, we, we win the game and we're back with the divine. And that's, the, what dif, that's what this is different from Vedic tradition and Abrahamic traditions. Because in Abrahamic traditions, there's eternal hell. An eternal heaven. But in Vedic tradition, there is no eternal heaven or hell. Everything is just the divine. And at some moment, we're going to once again go back. Maybe some take 10 lives. Maybe some take a million lives. But in the spectrum of eternality, does it really matter? No. So when we read this verse in the Gita where Krishna says that 
Um, the soul has always existed and will always continue to exist. It is most ancient. It is untouched by the things of this world. It's that reminder you are eternal and you are playing this game of hide and go seek. And in that game, you've come into this world and you've created certain relationships. Honor those relationships. Grieve if you have to. But at the higher level, know that that is not who you are. You are something divine and your beloved is waiting for you. <laughs> mm. Mm. How beautiful. I also love this, um, uh, you know, and Patanjali presents this in the sutras, also this sort of choice between like the path of suffering and the path of grace. And, you know, if we're not ready for grace, then sometimes suffering is also very useful to open us up to the moment where we can say, you know, let grace rain down upon me. <laughs> let me suffer no more. Exactly. And, you know, the thing is, even the suffering is a form of grace. And we only see it much later in our life when we're able to have a more bird's eye view on the situation. Absolutely. So, Swami, where can people find you if they want to learn more from you? Uh, well, you know, if you'd like some of the things that I'm doing, I'm, um, I'm on Instagram. It's just Swami Chidananda. You can follow along. Uh, we also have an ashram in New York where um, you can come and maybe spend some time to really feel what it's like to live in an ashram. And also I'm traveling to different places around the United States, giving talks. I'll be in Miami, hopefully in February, and we can do something with the Gita. I'm also doing things with Om Stars, where we're doing some online classes as well. So many different ways to, to connect and go deeper. So wonderful. And I just want to thank you so much for this time. And I really, really enjoyed this, these moments that we've spent together. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely. Thank you for the questions. They were very insightful. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.